Well, good morning, family. What a beautiful and wonderful day to be together in the Lord's house. I love to tell the story. What a great, a great song it is. I invite you to take your Bibles and, and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. That song really is the theme of our study as we've been going through the book of Acts. We're about two-thirds of the way through a study of the first 11 chapters, and then we're going to end there. The story, or the, the message, the book is really all about that message, the old story. You and I are here today because somewhere along the line, somebody loved to tell the story and told it to someone who told us. Sad thing is I, many of us watched a movie the middle of uh, this week on Wednesday. We saw the film The Insanity of God. Nick Ripkin uh, reminded us that the statistic overall in Christendom today is that the majority of believers born, born in the church, born again in the church, who have been married in the church, they die in the church, in other words, they've been believers for a good long while. The majority of believers never share the good news of Jesus with another soul. And uh, I trust that's not the case with you, my family, here at the chapel. But it is the case with far too many believers. And that's part of the reason we have been looking here at our mission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. He begins, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We have as believers a mission mandate, the Great Commission as we often call it, Matthew 28, that we are to be going into all the world and as we go we are to be making disciples. There's a story that during the late 1600s when Oliver Cromwell was ruling in the British Empire that uh, there was a shortage of silver for currency. So he sent out a delegation to find sources of silver. A month later they returned with a report to Cromwell. They said, we've searched the empire in vain seeking to find silver. To our dismay, we found none anywhere except in the cathedrals where the statues of the saints are made of choice silver. And Cromwell's reply was, well, let's melt down the saints and put them in circulation. I don't know if that story is factual, but what I do know is very true of what I believe Jesus desires for all of His saints, all of those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, that we are to be put into circulation. That we're to be busy about that mission. And as we come here to chapter 8 today, what we see is we find the church being put into circulation. We looked last week at these first four verses, but I want to look at them again before we move on. And Saul approved of his, that's, that's Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Just a few things to note from these verses. The first is, as we noted last week, there's this persecution that breaks out and it's led by who will later become the Apostle Paul. Right now he is Christendom's chief enemy and his, he is known as Saul. Paul himself describes what this persecution that he was championing, what it looked like. In Acts chapter 26, he says this, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. and, And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Saul is saying that I was... I did this with rage and fury. He did it with thoroughness. He was personally involved, not only in locking up the saints, but in securing their executions. And he even pursued them, he says, to foreign cities. In our text that we, I just read a moment ago from Acts, he says that, that it says that he drug off not only men, but men and women. There was no quarter given to those who are weaker, to women and presumably even to children. It says he went into house by house. He went and hunted them down. It was a great persecution. And so the church, it says, they scattered. They scattered. They left Jerusalem. They headed off into the larger region of Judea and then into Samaria. But we also note, it says here, that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And that's interesting just to note because you wonder, what's up with the apostles? Did they just decide to hang out where it's comfortable and take the easy thing by staying in Jerusalem? And nothing could be farther from the truth. Jerusalem is the hotbed of persecution. They have chosen to stay where the fire is the hottest. We may wonder why that might be. And I would think... I think there's really perhaps three reasons why they stayed there. They stayed there partly because there are still believers there. Believers who need to be shepherded. There's a church in Jerusalem. All the way through the book of Acts, we see there's still a church in Jerusalem. But also it says in verse 2 here, it says that devout men buried Stephen. And and made lamentation for him. And, and we might think, well, he's talking there about those, some of those believers who stayed in Jerusalem. But many commentators, actually most commentators say that because he does, if they were believers, he would probably say they were believers or disciples because those are the words that Acts used to describe them. But instead, he says devout men. And most of the commentators say, well, then these are devout Jews who, though they still are not following Christ, they are sympathetic to the cause and the plight of the Christians. And if that's the case, what this would indicate is that there are still many who have soft and tender hearts 
among the Jews. And perhaps the apostles say, we still need to be here to witness and to testify to those who remain in Jerusalem who have yet to trust Christ. And I think probably another practical reason is just that the church needs a home base. And we see this church in Jerusalem functioning at least through the chapter 15 of the book of Acts, which is another dozen years or so, that the church is the home base, that there is the place where, because if it's not in Jerusalem, where is it going to be? And so for when, when there are decisions that need to be made, when there are questions that need to be answered, when there are disputes that need to be resolved, they come back to the apostles in Jerusalem. And so the apostles, it says, remained there, even though it was most likely a most difficult thing for them to do. The church scatters, the apostles stay, but one thing else we see is that the gospel spreads. Rather than this persecution that Saul and the religious leaders unleash upon the church, rather than it being like water that douses the flame of the church, it acts like gasoline and the flame spreads and ignites bigger. Rather than than persecution making these saints grow quiet, it makes them grow bolder. Rather than, as it were, stomping onto the puddle of the church and the water disappearing, the water simply moves. It displaces and goes broader and bigger. These believers, despite seeing what had happened to Stephen, despite having to flee for their lives, despite losing friends and family to prison and to death, despite losing their houses, their possessions, their life savings, most likely for many of them, despite losing the fellowship of their church. And can you imagine what it would be in your own life if between now and next Sunday some great persecution erupts and you have to go on the run, leave your house, all your things behind. You're on the run The church is smoldering. We never see one another again. What it would be like, that's a little of what these folks are going through. Despite all these things, now they're on the run with, with just a handful perhaps of other believers or maybe totally alone. Despite all these things, these folks are boldly sharing Jesus wherever they go. What Jesus has done is He has melted down the saints, as it were, and put them in circulation. Rather than all being concentrated in Jerusalem, now the greatest missionary force that the church has ever seen, I think, is suddenly put into circulation. The Greek word used here, matter of fact, for scattered, that the church was scattered, is the exact same Greek word that was used to describe a farmer when he would take a bag of seed and go and cast the seed. He's scattering the seed, and that's what God is doing with the church. He's now scattering the seed into other soil, other places where the church is going to grow. A couple of quick observations from that for us. The first is that adversity... And difficulty, hardship, disease, problems that these things, if you notice, they come into your life. I don't I, I don't think there's anybody here who hasn't had problems and difficulties 
frustrations, aggravations, sufferings. They often come into our life. But I think that God, rather than you and me just enduring them, God intends that you and I will discover that these problems are likely an opportunity to share the Gospel. You see, when you get cancer, when a loved one dies, when you lose your job, when there are problems that arise with a difficult person at work, When you go through some crisis, if we will lift our eyes up past ourselves and look out, almost always God is opening a door for you and me to share the good news of Christ with someone else through our lips and through our life as we endure this difficulty walking hand in hand with Christ, we become a living testimony. That's why somebody said once that God puts many great opportunities before us, often cleverly disguised as problems. Another quick observation and application of this is that sharing the gospel is everyone's responsibility. Sharing the gospel is not just the mission for the apostles. There are some folks who believed that. There are some folks who thought that, well, the Great Commission was just for the apostles and it's not for us. If God wants to win the world for Christ, He will do it through other people. So they told William Carey. God will do it Himself. He doesn't need you, William Carey. And he said, no, God's calling me. And He calls all of us. They didn't read Acts, which the, this mission moves very quickly from these original twelve disciples who are those who are spreading the word to Stephen and to Philip and to every one of the believers in the church who now go out, as verse 4 says, preaching the word. Verse 5, Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The Gospel goes to Samaria through Philip, one of those seven men. We looked at Stephen last week. Seven men that the apostles set aside and commissioned to deal with a benevolence issue who very quickly grew into preachers of the Word themselves, great ministers. And Philip heads to Samaria. But we need a little background very quickly here. Samaria, and some of your Bibles will read, he went to the city of Samaria. Some of your Bibles will read, a city in Samaria. And there's a difference between the two, which one's right? And the answer is, we're not really sure. But what's Samaria? Samaria is a region. It's a region in the land of Palestine, the the nation of Israel. You have Judea to the south, and Samaria a north of Judea, and then Galilee in the, in the north. Samaria is a region, and it has a city named Samaria. What's intriguing is that in Samaria live people called the Samaritans. That's not really intriguing. It's just what you call people who live wherever. In America live Americans, you know. 
In Mexico live Mexicans, and in Samaria live Samaritans. And you say, well, what's a Samaritan? Somebody who lives in Samaria. But what else do you know about Samaritans? You go and ask them, most, most people out there, what is a Samaritan? I doubt many people could give you an answer. Or if they could, they would say this, well, a Samaritan is somebody who does good deeds. So we have, you know, they got that from the story of the Good Samaritan, because we all know that story. And so Samaritans are good people who go around doing good deeds. Except that's really not the story. (laughs) Well, it is the story, but, well, more of that. The Samaritans live there, but we need a little background. You see, the Samaritans are the people who lived in Samaria, but where do they come from? Originally, you'll go way back in Israel's history and you'll remember that the nation divided into two, north and south. And the northern kingdom of Israel, the people who live in Samaria are the the remnants of those folks who were in the northern kingdom. And the nation of Assyria came and captured the, the northern kingdom and took them away into captivity and just left a few folks who were there in that northern kingdom. And then the Assyrians brought in other Gentile peoples and resettled them in this this land of the northern part of Israel. And those Gentiles and these, these Israelites intermarried and they became the Samaritans. The Samaritans are the descendants of the intermarriages between those that remnant of Jews and these Gentiles. So the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews in Judea and the folks in Samaria, they're neighbors and they're also related. And if you look back at the Samaritans, what you'll learn is the Samaritans and the Jews both claim to worship Yahweh God. And the Samaritans, like the Jews, also looked for a coming Messiah. But the Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses. The Samaritans also rejected the worship of the Jews and they rejected the temple in Jerusalem. They had their own worship customs and they had their own temple in Mount Gerizim. And so they had their own separate, in many ways, their own separate religion. So the Jews and the Samaritans have been bitter enemies going all the way back to the time when the southern Jews came back to the land of Israel from being captives in Babylon. And a feud started that never ended. And the Jews in Judea and Galilee, the Jews... They detested these Samaritans because of their mixed heritage, that they were part Jewish and part Gentile. So they considered them, they would call them mongrels. They also rejected the the corrupted worship of these Samaritans. And so these two groups hated each other. There was deep division, bitter division, bitter hostility between them. So much that there were many, many rules and laws that Jews had dealing with the Samaritans and likewise the Samaritans with the Jews. 
The Jews, for example, would not allow... If your chariot crashed into you know, their chariot and the only witness was a Samaritan, he couldn't testify in court because a Samaritan's word was no good in court. That's the type of things. If you lived in Jerusalem and you wanted to go up to Nazareth or in Nazareth and you wanted to go down to Jerusalem, the simplest way and the shortest way, of course, would be a straight line. And there you have about 70 miles between the two cities. But a good Jew wouldn't go that way. A good Jew would go 20 miles to the east and then go up and then go 20 miles to the west. They'd add 40 miles to a 70-mile trip because, you see, to go through Samaria was dangerous because of the hostilities of the Samaritans and it was also because Samaritans are dirty people. <laughs> We'd get contaminated. We would be unclean if we just might happen to get in the shadow of a Samaritan or bump shoulders with a Samaritan. and So they would go all the way around. You get a picture for the relationship here between these two peoples. And those are the people that Philip goes to. By the way, it's that situation that makes Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan such a shock to the people of that day because Jesus made the hero of, this, of that parable a dirty, rotten, scalawag Samaritan. So Philip breaks all cultural norms and goes to Samaria. It's, it's a bold thing to do. It's a potentially dangerous thing to do. Probably a difficult thing to do because just as Jews despise Samaritans, Samaritans despise Jews. And yet, a most amazing thing happens. As he goes and preaches Christ that Jesus is the Messiah, verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard Him and they saw the signs that He did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. A shocker! The Samaritans not only didn't reject Philip, they listened to Him. And not only do they listen to Him, but you go down to verse 12 and it says this, but they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom, the kingdom of God and about the name of Jesus. And they were baptized, both men and women. In other words, tons of Samaritans become believers in Jesus Christ. Nobody would have thought it. As a matter of fact, when word gets down to the apostles in Jerusalem, nobody believed it. <laughs> you go down to, uh, down to verse 14. It says, When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. That's code for they were going, What? <laughs> How did that happen? Samaritans became believers in Jesus? <laughs> I'm not sure that really could happen. Better send some guys up to check it out. Peter, John, you go. So they did. You see, they really shouldn't have been surprised. 
See, when you go back to the Gospels, go back to John chapter 4, and Jesus one day was there with the disciples. They're down in Jerusalem. And it's time to head back up north to Galilee. And it says there in John chapter 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And every Jew in the world would say, no, you don't. And Jesus said, come on, guys, let's go. He drags them through Samaria where no good Jew goes. And here they go. And about the middle of the day, they get to this village called Sychar. And Jesus comes to a well and sits down and sends the disciples off to get some food. You remember the story. And a woman comes to the well. And there's that story of the woman at the well. You see, that situation is brought up at the, about the first words from this woman as Jesus says, hey, would you get me a drink? The lady says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John adds that little editorial note, because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. By the end of that day, John goes on to record in verse 39, Many, from that city, many believed in Him. And the the Samaritans are saying, Jesus, would you please stay here and keep teaching? There's so much we want to know. And so Jesus stays for two more days. And as He leaves, John reports that the Samaritans said, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Those Samaritans in Sychar were more receptive and more quick to believe Jesus than the Jews in Judea and in Galilee. So it shouldn't have been a surprise that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus gives the mission to the apostles and to all of us, He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria? And the disciples might not have heard the rest of it because at that point they're going, what? (laughs) But you see, old prejudices and bitternesses and habits die hard. It has been at least two, possibly three years since Pentecost, since the church began. Here in Acts chapter 8, And at this point, no one has gone and shared the good news of Jesus in Samaria until Philip. And as soon as he goes, boom! (laughs) The doors burst open and the Samaritans are like, whoa! We believe. What a shock. The apostles go to Samaria, verse 14. They, when they've heard that they received the Word of God, they send Peter and John and they come down, verse 15, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they, the Samaritans, received the Holy Spirit. This passage has caused a lot of heartburn among believers today. Not because Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. That doesn't bug us. But because some people, they come to this passage and they read this and they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. 
Receiving the Holy Spirit is a separate event from trusting in Jesus Christ, from being saved. That these are these are different things, and they happen at different times. And so, you get saved, you trust in Jesus, but then you also need to some other time you need to receive the Holy Spirit. And granted, if we look at the Book of Acts, you will see that there are actually there are actually four Pentecost-like events. The first is Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls on those who are in the upper room. And then you come here in Acts chapter 8, and then there's two other events, and we'll talk about those later, where you could think that these are separate things. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, you always must look at all of Scripture. All of the rest of the New Testament teaching is very clear that the Holy Spirit comes when we receive Jesus as Savior. At the same time, here we have Ephesians chapter 1. As Paul writes, he says, In Him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and you believed on Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When were you sealed with the Holy Spirit? He says, when you believed. You heard and believed, you were sealed. All right there at the same time says over as well in, in 1 Corinthians as he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 and he says, for we are by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in the body of Christ. You are in the church. And how did you get there? You were baptized. You were immersed. You were placed into the church. You were placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. What that's saying is if you weren't baptized by the Holy Spirit, then you aren't in the church. And if you're not in the church, well, you're also not a believer. Paul says to the Romans, he says, if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And we could go on, but the point is the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that to be a believer in Jesus Christ is to have the Holy Spirit living in you and you have been baptized by the Spirit. They happen at the same time. And so if that is true, then it raises a big question. Well, first of all, I guess before that, I just have to say we have to recognize and be careful that as we come to the book of Acts, we need to remember that this is a transitional book. The book of Acts is where we move from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the New Testament, the New Covenant. It is moving from Judaism to Christianity, as it were. And this is, as a transitional book, God is doing some things a little bit differently for some specific reasons, which raises the question, why would, if the normal thing is for believers to receive the Holy Spirit the moment they trust in Christ, why would God do it differently here? By the way, I think Luke, by the very fact that here he has to make a note, a special note, that these, these folks had not received the Holy Spirit, Yet, by the very fact he has to point out they were they were believers in Jesus, but they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. He has to make a big note of that because that's not the normal thing. And otherwise, we just assume they have the Holy Spirit. But he said, no, they hadn't yet. Why? Why the delay? Why were they saved here, believe in Christ, and they wait? God waits 
to send them the Holy Spirit till these apostles come and lay their hands on them? I think the answer has everything to do with who the Jews and Samaritans are. You see, it was necessary to show that this church is united in Jesus. It's necessary to unite the church in Jesus. These Samaritans and Jews have been at each other's throats. They have had rival religions for 500 years. Going back to John chapter 4, as Jesus met with that Samaritan woman, Jesus had some things to say, quite a lot to say. (laughs) He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, Huh? Okay, that's a little paraphrase. She said, I don't know what you're saying, but I, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when He comes, He'll tell us all things. He'll explain everything. And Jesus said, I'm He. I who speak to you am He. Oh. (laughs) Now what was He saying? He says, you worship what you do not know. First thing He tells them is, Samaritans, your worship, what you believe is wrong. By the way, when we deal with folks, we never amend the truth. We never alter the truth. We speak the truth. And Jesus spoke the truth plainly. Samaritans, what you believe is wrong. We worship what we do know. As Jews, we worship the truth. For salvation is from the Jews. Salvation comes through the Jews, he's saying, not through the Samaritans. And he says, true worshipers need to worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, this. You can be as sincere as possible. You can be a very sincere Samaritan, but the fact that you don't have the truth, you're in big trouble. If you sincerely believe a lie, you're still believing a lie. He says you can also have the truth like the Jews do, but refuse to believe the truth like most of the Jews were. And you're equally in big trouble. True worshipers, he's saying, are those who have the truth and believe the truth. That's whom God seeks. And Jesus says the truth, salvation has come through the Jews. It's the Jewish Messiah who is the Savior. And Jesus says, I am He. And he, he, he doesn't say it in this passage, but earlier he says the day is coming when, when it's not going to be about do you worship at the temple in Jerusalem or do you worship at the temple in Mount Gerizim? Or, he says it's not going to be about that. Why? Because the Savior, the Messiah, has come and the real question is not which system are you following, but are you trusting Jesus? Now the Messiah has come. This is the message of the Gospel. Anyone who will believe in Jesus will be saved, whether you're a Jew or a Samaritan. And so why did God hold off 
on having these Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles got there? Because the Samaritans needed it. The Samaritans needed to understand that the receiving of the Holy Spirit through the hands of the apostles is an understanding and a recognition that the Scriptures that they believed were true and that the Messiah that the Scriptures point to is the true Messiah. And salvation is through Him. And it was recognizing that they were identifying themselves with the church which was founded by Jesus and to put themselves under the authority and the leadership of the Jewish apostles. So it was for the sake of the Samaritans, but it was equally for the sake of the apostles who needed to understand that the Messiah who came through promised by the prophets who came to be their Savior also came to be the Savior of the Samaritans. And that as these apostles laid their hands on the, on the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit came upon them, that the Samaritans received the same Holy Spirit they did. And it was the message to them that they are saved the same way and that they are equally received into the body of Christ and into His church. Verse 25, when they had testified, these disciples had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Peter and John understood what had just happened. They got the lesson that God had for them. And that is that this message of the good news of Jesus is not just for Jews. It's even for those dirty, rotten, raunchy Samaritans. Because God loves them as much as He loves us. And so they wasted no time when they left there. They went to other villages in Samaria and began sharing the good news of Jesus. You see, and there's a message here for not only them, but it's for all of us. It calls for us to examine our own hearts. See, we use an awful lot of labels. Things that divide us and that sometimes become barriers for you and me to care for other people and to share Jesus Christ with them. Our Samarias have many forms. We have the Samaria of race, skin color. But the reality is that blacks and whites and Asians and every ethnicity needs Jesus. We have the Samaria of nationalities. The reality is that Americans and Mexicans and Pakistanis all need Jesus. And God loves, it says as we quoted John 3.16 earlier, God loves the world. He so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes in Him, anyone who believes in Him, will not perish but have everlasting life. And Revelation promises that around the throne of God there will be gathered people from every ethnicity, every every tribe, every tongue. We have some areas of politics. The reality is that Republicans and Democrats and Independents all need Jesus. 
We have some areas of social and economic status. But rich people and poor people, popular people and loners, they all need Jesus. We have some areas of looks. But the reality is that beautiful people and homely people, fat people and skinny people, tattooed people, pierced people, (laughs) whatever the looks are, we all need Jesus. We have some areas of education, but geniuses, and simple people, and folks with PhDs, and folks who cannot read or write their own name. We all need Jesus. Verse 8 says, after Philip had gone and preached there in Samaria, it says, and there was great joy in that city. That's what happens when people hear And when they believe the good news of Jesus, it brings joy. And I just wonder, how dare we? How dare we, whom God has so loved and so graciously forgiven, how dare we withhold the message of life from those who are in our Samarias? It is the message of life The message of joy. And we're to share it not only with our Jerusalem, we're to share it with our Samaria. And that may mean for you that you need to cross a street that you've never crossed. Or go next door where you've never gone. It might mean you need to cross the tracks. Or it might mean you need to cross the city. But we need to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria. Father, the sad reality is that many of us have never shared our faith with anyone. Father, I pray that You'd melt us down and put us in circulation. And that as we get in circulation, we're busy sharing in Judea and in Samaria. Lord, if there are any who we have been afraid of, suspicious of, we have not liked, whatever, Lord, break down those walls. Give us the courage Give us the passion that says we cannot keep silent. Lord, that when we stand before You, we would be shown to be a people, a congregation who has been faithful in our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria to share the good news of Jesus. In His name I pray. Amen.